That's one thing which I'm always very happy that you bring your kids along and let them play around. Yeah, they may just come up on the monk's stage, they may just rush around and play and make some noise, but at least that means that they get used to this place and they get to know this is a place like their home and they trust the monks who are here. And just uh, a few minutes ago, there's a three of the Sri Lankan girls, and one of them was asking. They said that uh, in Sri Lanka, they heard that it's uh, disrespectful to turn your back against the Buddha. I do that every Friday night, Saturday, and I'm doing that now. <laughs> and of course, some of those ideas, if it's done out of disrespect, fair enough. But if it's just done because you know, in some temples, that's the only way you can uh, sit. I know that in many temples, I know several temples, they've got so many Buddha statues, there's Buddha statues all around the outside. And there's no way that you could sit without your back facing the Buddha somewhere, you're surrounded. So because of that, it's all about your respect inside of what you're actually doing. Obviously, I'm sitting with my back towards the Buddha now, so I can see you and talk to you. You have to do it that way. Even at some times, sometimes even during our meditation class on a Saturday, I remember this one woman coming here, and she was sitting in the, the back there, and she lay down, she went fast asleep, and she started snoring. And when she started snoring, a few other people close by to her started um, poking her to wake her up. And that poor girl woke up and I told those people off afterwards, if somebody is sleeping, even if they're snoring, please let them. Because in her case, she was a victim of quite severe domestic abuse. And she came here and as soon as she came in this hall, she felt safe. She felt that no one would bother her here. So she took the opportunity, just naturally, just to lay down and take a little nap. And so there's many reasons why people come in here and fall fast asleep. And so I said, please remember that next time, just if they're falling asleep, just let them. If you can, it's a little cushion, maybe put the cushion under their head so they can have a good night's sleep. But don't disturb them. They're not doing this out of disrespect. They're doing this because this is a quiet place. And even to the point that when I teach meditation on retreats, that sometimes as many people get sleepy on retreats, they try so hard. And that's why I taught them something which many of you should know. I call it the Ananda method of enlightenment. You know Ananda, the Buddha's chief disciple? Oh no, it's chief attendant. He was with the Buddha for 25 years. And after the Buddha passed away, Ananda still wasn't fully enlightened. But nevertheless, he'd listened to the teachings of the Buddha for such a long time that when they decided to have a little convention to collect all the teachings together, they had to invite him. Because he knew so much, he remembered so much. And even though they invited four, four, 499 fully enlightened monastics, 499 arahats plus Ananda, 
was the only one out of all those 500 who wasn't fully enlightened. Imagine how he felt. Imagine how you would feel if it just before midnight I made the announcement after the meditation which follows this talk that all of you got deep meditation, all of you were fully in line except one of you, you. Please, <laughs> <laughs> a sunny example, I didn't mean anything. <laughs> How would you feel? You feel, oh, that's just so unfair. 499 of my friends are fully enlightened, I'm the only one who's not. So what would you do? This is what Ananda did. He meditated all night, he never slept. He sat and struggled and uh, when the sun came up in the morning, he still wasn't enlightened. So he thought, well I've tried the very best I can. This is maybe nothing to do. So he decided there's an hour left before he had to attend this uh, convocation. So he decided to go and take a nap. He went back to his room and he lay down. And as all of you will probably remember hearing many times, just before his head hit the pillow, he became the 500th enlightened being there. He made it just in time. Just as he went to lay down before his head hit the pillow. So to this day, I call that the Ananda method of enlightenment. And I'm sure many of you have practiced that. <laughs> it hasn't worked yet, but according to probability theory, the more times you do it, <laughs> the more likelihood is it's going to work. No, but why did it work? I'm getting to some deep dumb and that just happens. Why? And the reason is the simile of the donkey and the carrot. I've already mentioned donkeys before when during the uh, little quiz that I said that how many books have Ajahn Brahm written because every book you have written, according to this one Zen monk many, many years ago, said every book you've written, you have to spend seven lifetimes as a donkey. That's what he told me. So I had to work out how many books I've written. Actually, only two. All the rest were transcripts, and somebody else edited and published it. So I've only got 14 lifetimes as a donkey. No, but the donkey simile, I don't believe that by the way, that's just a funny story. But the actual uh, story of the donkey is actually very beautiful, very profound. How do you get a donkey to work? To pull a cart? The cart may be full of people, or maybe full of goods to be transported to the market. Because donkeys are so stubborn. I heard this even as a young uh, kid when I was growing up, as stubborn as a donkey. Because you can get a stick out and hit the donkey, the donkey won't move. But that's not how you use a stick on a donkey. Instead of hitting the donkey with a stick, that's totally uncompassionate, un-Buddhist. 
you tie the stick to the donkey's neck. And so the front of the stick is about two foot in front of the donkey's mouth. On the end of a stick, you tie a string. And on the end of the string, you tie a carrot. Of course, that doesn't work in, in Malaysia. You have to put a durian on the, end of, <laughs> on the end of a stick. I don't know if it would work in, in other countries. What would you put in Thailand? A mango? Would that work? In <laughs> Mangosteen? Banana? I don't know what you like, but anyway. So you put a piece of fruit on the end of the string and imagine you're the donkey. You're sitting, standing here and you see a beautiful mango just right in front of you. What would you do? You'd move towards the mango. You like mangoes. And as you move towards the mango, the stick moves, the string moves, and the mango moves. And that mango is always somewhere around two foot in front of your mouth. Never gets closer, never gets further. Maybe a little bit, an inch here, an inch there, but it's usually about two foot in front of your mouth. You can never quite reach it. It's just like your financial security and comfort. Sometimes it seems so close, so close, and then they increase your rent, or, <laughs> or you lose your job, and then your financial security, you can almost see it, but then it goes away from you. Or your health, you can have this test and that test, and go see the doctor for this, and go and see the doctor for that, and sometimes if you're really healthy, I think i fixed the problem now, it's almost that what your goal is quite close to you and then it moves away again. You know why, don't you now? Because that carrot or mango always has to be about two foot in front of your mouth. When you move, the stick moves, the string moves, and the, your goal moves as well. But there is a way Ananda method of enlightenment. This is how you catch the carrot, the mango, the durian, whatever you have on the end of the stick. And this is how meditation works. How you get enlightened. Do you want to be enlightened? You do? <laughs> no, thank you. At least there's one honest person here. <laughs> Sometimes I tell people that at the start of nine-day retreats, I say, if you want to get enlightened, don't get enlightened in the first couple of days of the retreat. Otherwise, you'll have nothing to do afterwards. you get bored. <laughs> Muddy joking. So, how does a donkey catch the carrot? He runs as fast as he can after the carrot. But it doesn't matter how fast the donkey runs. That carrot is always two foot in front of his mouth. Doesn't matter how fast you run. But the donkey, because it's come to the Buddhist Society of Western Australia on a Friday evening, because it's gone to one of our retreats at Jhana Grove, that donkey knows how to catch the carrot. Easy. It's been running really fast, and then the donkey stops. You know, the idea of stopping, we always say mindfulness and jhanas and keeping your precepts is important, 
But the ability to stop is also really, really fundamental, a core part of Buddhist training, learning how to stop. So the donkey stops. What does the, the, uh, the mango do on the end of the string? The mango swings further away than it's ever been before because of momentum. You've been running after it and you know, even though it's only two feet in front of you, as fast as your head is going, that's how fast the mango is going. And then when you stop, the mango goes further away than it's ever been before. When you try this method, people think, oh, it's not working. It's getting worse. I get more thoughts, more tiredness, everything is going worse than it usually is. But you have to have confidence, have to have faith in the teachings. You just stop and things start to get worse. But before you, you know, run away from the Buddhist society in West Australia, just be patient. And soon that mango is four foot in front of your head. It's never been so far away ever before. But then the mango stops too. And as the mango stops, it then starts swinging towards you. It's never done that before, ever. You're not chasing it anymore. It's coming towards you. You're not putting any effort at all. You're just standing there, stopped, peaceful, still. And soon that mango is two foot in front of your mouth. It's normal position, but this time that mango is coming at full speed towards you. And soon it's right in front of your mouth as it swings close to you. And you have to remember one of the most important teachings in Buddhism. You have to say to that mango, just as it's coming into your mouth, Mango, the door of my mouth is open to you. <laughs> if you don't open your mouth as a donkey, it bounces off your teeth. Have you ever seen how big mango's teeth, ma not mango's, how big donkey's teeth are? They're really huge. So you have to open the door of your mouth so the mango can come in. And that's the Ananda method of enlightenment. He was running so hard after enlightenment, you know, because of going to the conference, and then he stopped. And when he stopped, mango went further away, then came right into his mouth. And opening the door of your mouth is like compassion, opening the door of your heart. That's how you become enlightened. Pretty simple, isn't it? You've got to run after the, the mango first. And that's what Ananda had been doing all night. When he stopped, the mango did its job. That's one of the reasons why a lot of time, if I go to places like Sri Lanka, there's so many Buddha statues everywhere. There used to be almost at every intersection to be a Buddha statue. You know, you, you go to Thailand, there's lots of beautiful temples there and statues. But in Australia, I've sometimes seen you know, crosses, you know, you've seen uh, mosques. What is the sign of Buddhism in Australia? You see it at every, not every, but many major intersections. Exactly. <laughs> the stop sign. Every time I see the stop sign, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. 
is like seeing a Buddha statue. <laughs> seeing a symbol of Buddhism. <laughs> Isn't that so? Stop. Sometimes you can see that Buddhism has been in Australia such a long time. There's so many stop signs all over the place. But I don't say that is about stopping your car. That's one interpretation. It's also stopping your mind as well. Stopping all the thinking. Stopping all the going off into the future, going off into the past. Stop and be here. That's one of the reasons why so many people right now keep looking at the clock. How many more minutes are there to go to the new year? I see a clock in front of me, 11 minutes past 11. If I had a remote control, I'd just boom, 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 <laughs> and turn it to 11.59 already, so we can enter the new year before everybody else. <laughs> but, of course, I can't do that. But it doesn't matter. Uh, all it means is I just have to keep on thinking of something to say a bit longer. But never <laughs> nevertheless, I'm so used to talking. You know, sometimes, like when I finish here, you know, tomorrow afternoon I'm going on a retreat, my own personal retreat, going in my cave and being quiet. Not giving a talk for about you know, 10 days. But you know, I'm pretty sure. I'm so used to giving talks all over the world. Every day I give a talk somewhere, and if it's not actually you know, sitting here or sitting in monastery or sitting in some other place on Zoom or Skype, there's so many temples these days on the internet. So I reckon, I reckon if I go on retreat, I'm pretty sure it happens. In the middle of the night, I'd probably give a talk in my sleep. <laughs> so anybody who's missing, you should try this in a monastery. Put a recorder under my bed in my cave. You'll probably hear some amazing talks in the middle of the night. <laughs> it's become my habit to talk. But anyhow, uh, instead of worrying about time, how many New Year's have you done so far in my life? In my life, I'm 72 now, just past 72. And I have done 216 New Year's. There's the Western New Year, the Chinese New Year, and the, the Thai Sri Lankan New Year in April. I do so many years, that's why I look old, I feel old. <laughs> three times older than other people, because it's three more New Year's than everybody else. <laughs> so anyhow, you know, I don't mind celebrating the New Year in all the traditions. One of the reasons why, actually the Sri Lankan New Year, uh, not the, the Chinese New Year is one of the most difficult. I remember I was over in Kuala Lumpur on Chinese New Year a few years ago and I was giving talks like I always, I always do and I gave a talk and then there's the questions and then there was the photographs and more questions, it always is like that. And so by the time I got back to the place where I was resting, it was about a quarter to midnight. And so, you know, I didn't mind staying up till midnight when I was a young kid, going out with girlfriends and stuff. Oh, I should be careful saying that, not girlfriends, only one at a time, because they were really expensive. <laughs> so, so I remember just getting back at quarter to 12 and tucking myself into bed in the lovely room of the Buddhist Gem Fellowship place they had there then, which was very comfortable. 
and just about to fall asleep, then bang, boom, bang, fireworks for Chinese New Year. <laughs> I wish they could have Chinese New Year a bit earlier in the evening, but they can't, it has to be midnight. Even worse than that, I'm just going so crazy stories. Over in Penang, I was in Penang just last week, uh, teaching a meditation retreat. It's a quite a lovely center they have there now, but in the old times, their center was you know, the back of Mahindarama temple, and they gave me a room there, and it was facing the street, and the you know, ordinary housing on the other side of the street. And because I used to go over there you know, in December, one of those evenings was Christmas Eve, or Christmas Eve. And not everybody is a Buddhist, you know, in Penang, there was many Christians there. And there was a family, it was Christmas Eve, and they decided to celebrate with a karaoke party. <laughs> and that was right opposite my room. And just a narrow street, and you couldn't close the windows because it was too hot. So anyway, that was the first time I experienced karaoke. <laughs> I'm a Buddhist man, I didn't have karaoke when I was a kid, honestly. And <laughs> one thing I found about karaoke with a, a party of Christians, that they got more and more drunk as the evening passed. I got back to my room about 10 or 11, and it went on to past midnight. And there's no way you could go to sleep when there's all this hollering and they called it singing. It wasn't singing. No one in the right mind could ever call that singing. It was so out of key and out of tune. But it seemed to be it didn't matter when people were drunk. They would just really sing their, I don't know, I can't call it singing their hearts. I don't think they had any heart left. It was just crazy singing. And everyone was laughing and encouraging each other. And from that time on, I realized, I realized that in all the hell realms which I have heard about in Buddhism, there is another one, the one of the worst, called the karaoke hell. <laughs> and if you've been a bad singer and really dis <laughs> if you've been a bad singer and you've really been unkind to others who want to have a, a nice night's sleep, you may get reborn as a punishment in the karaoke hell, where you have to hear karaoke go on again and again and again from eon to eon to eon, not just for, for a couple of hours, but for century after a century after a century. Because I do know that karaoke gets worse and worse the longer it goes on. And it becomes like the moaning of people being tortured. So I always thought that would be the worst hell realm to ever go to, a karaoke hell realm. <laughs> I don't know if you like karaoke, if I do I apologize. But for my memory of it, I was traumatized, and I don't think I could ever get out, out, of, out, out of that trauma. Maybe I need some therapy or something, I'm not sure. But anyhow, <laughs> that sometimes that's how people celebrate. And how many people, why can't they celebrate in silence? And start this new year, instead of so much noise, in peace. We always wish peace and goodwill to all People, that's it, you know, in the, in the Western traditions. May you be at peace. May you be at peace! May you be at peace! And they shout, it makes so much noise trying to make people peaceful. <laughs> and I get so upset, I want to celebrate peace by giving them a piece of my mind. I've got lots of peace in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> 
But nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, I think sometimes people don't realize what peace and happiness really is. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? This is the end of the year. What have you learned from it? Because whenever there's any mistakes made, any suffering, anything which didn't work well, one of the reasons why we suffer is we can't find meaning in it. If there's some meaning in it, something we can grow from, something we can improve with, then it doesn't hurt so much. It gives it this emotional positive quality. Yeah, you may be tired, but you've achieved something, especially for other people. And that's one of the reasons why I really don't mind giving lots and 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 lots of talks. Because every now and again you go overseas or overseas people come here and they tell you what those talks have done for them. And I think I've mentioned this in some of the talks, but when I did go over to UK recently, there was, it's just some of the most uh, unexpected places. You meet people who listen to your talks regularly online. Then we put all this on, on YouTube or somewhere, I'm not quite sure where, because it always gets recorded that people all over the world can listen to this. And so I was in the town of Sheffield. It's a Yorkshire town. It's not like a center of Buddhism in the Western world. But nevertheless, I was walking down the street on the way to give a retreat, a weekend retreat somewhere, just come from the railway station, walking to the venue, and this guy in a big backhoe, not just the, the small ones, a really big one, because they were redoing some major roads in the center of the city of Sheffield. And he looked at me. I looked at him, and he stopped his engine. And he opened his window. He said, hey! You are the spitting image of Ajahn Brahm in Australia. <laughs> That's what he said to me, he shouted at that. <laughs> and I said to him, yes, I can understand that. I am Ajahn Brahm, but in Sheffield, in UK. And what happened next was that he stopped his machine totally and he came down all the work of mending the main roads in the center of Sheffield stopped as he came down from his, he was one of the bosses, came down from his machine, had a chat, photo session, and he wasn't Singaporean. That's what usually what happens with Singaporeans. Worst of, no, I can't say, the best of all, <laughs> photographs. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> photographs, chat, and, and it wasted about half the time of the taxpayers' money. But anyway, I enjoyed it. But what I really enjoyed there, he said he listens to those talks regularly, every week. You know, from Sheffield, the Friday night talks. And it's wonderful that you can see how far these talks go. And it was also this guy over in Prague, he was saying that he was the guy, he actually came on a retreat over in uh, yeah, I think it, w it was in Malaysia, I forget now. 
but he's probably listening to this this evening because he translates it, these talks, into Ukrainian and Russian. You realize how much pain and suffering is going on in that place. And he translates my talks. And he puts them on YouTube sites for any person in Russia or Ukraine to listen to. And he said, I don't forget, 20,000 people listening to it every, every time. It's a lot of people. You know, sometimes, people tell me this, they look at the news in the world, and how can we help? And just, you know, sometimes that's one of the worst things, you can see the suffering. And we always want to help, what can we do? And sometimes people say, there's nothing we can do. Of course there is. He showed that. Sometimes a talk which you give here, just in the microphone, goes into that room, and some whiz kids in the back room, either today or later on, they sort of send it over to this guy in Prague, and he translates it into uh, Ukrainian and Russian, serving both sides. Both sides suffer without any discrimination. And that's a beautiful thing which can uplift people and give them some hope, some peace, some meaning you know, in their suffering. They can get somewhere, they can realize it is impermanent and that these things happen in our countries and they disappear again. It kind of reminds me, because I was born in London uh, just after the Second World War, and you can still remember seeing as a kid some of the bomb sites, damaged buildings, blown up, and just still you know, people talking about what happened to them in that war and how dangerous it was. Even my own mother told me that she was very lucky to have survived. There was a bomb, you know, there was bombs all over the place, but one hit the house next door, and it wasn't like these houses in Australia or in uh, Nansen Way where there's, you know, there's gardens in between. These are the old terraced houses, you know, just uh, close together. And the house next door got a direct hit and everyone was instantly killed. And, uh, my mother was in the house next door, in her, her house, what she rented, and she said her, her arm was lacerated with flying glass and other debris. And she survived. And then she became a very lovely mum. And I appreciated, appreciated her so much. And to see what happens after that great, great trauma, what it happened to many people, they got meaning that we have to learn how to live together. We have to somehow sort of get rid of these stupid ideas of being dominant and being the boss and learning how to look after one another. And still even today, I remember people I knew who experienced all that during that Second World War, just in London. It's something you could hardly believe. They said that was the best years of their life. So are they, are they having me on? Are they trying to emphasize something which I don't understand? The best years of their life because their whole life was about working together to survive. And just getting on and being the boss or being the wealthiest wasn't really important anymore. It just coming together to be a better human beings. And this wasn't just English people. Because at that time, even in London, it was a multicultural city with people from all parts of the world.
And that's why that they learnt how to live together and work together and survive together. And that was the meaning of it. When you understand even great suffering, there's meaning to be seen, meaning to be found, then you understand that why these things happen. They're kind of opportunities for us to try and be better human beings, because we must become better human beings. So sometimes we obviously hope, we make aspirations for the next year of 2024. It's a leap year. Am I right? Yeah. It's a leap year. So may we leap over all of the problems which people have, you know, realizing that sort of harmony is more important than being right. <sighs> I don't know how many how many politicians keep arguing. I did read in the uh, ABC website, which I still look at, that um, there's federal elections in US next year. Is that correct? And they're having these debates. Wouldn't it be wonderful if during these debates between all these different parties, they look at each other and say, yes, I can see what you're thinking about, I agree with that. <laughs> and have no argument. And Mr. Trump will look at Mr. Biden and say, yes, you're a really good man, I think you've got some great ideas. And Mr. Biden would look at Mr. Trump and say, yeah, you've got some great ideas too. Do you think that would ever happen? I don't think so, because it's bad TV. Now, people would turn off, <laughs> to be honest. But nevertheless, in spite of all the arguments and shenanigans, there is still a major amount of people realize that we're in this all together, we have to work together, and the ways to overcome the problems, like Please excuse me, I keep repeating stories because that's because I'm old and many of you are old and so you probably don't remember the story, <laughs> I hope. But I'm sure you remember this one. Because on Thursday, again, very privileged to do a wedding ceremony for a couple who come here. They've been coming here, especially her, for so many years. And she said, some of these teachings, you know, get her through being a teenage, teenager, you know, working, growing up, finding a partner in life, and learning how to work with that partner. And the two of the teachings which I emphasize, the first one is what I hope each one of you will practice. I don't care what country you came from. I don't care how old you are. I don't care. Actually, I do care about it. It's not important, I mean. It's not important what gender, LGBTQIA+, or whatever, it doesn't matter your health or well-being. Is that, I said that when a person uh, has a friend, has a relationship, you must never ever think of yourself, nor must you ever think of your partner, wherever that partner happens to be. You must only think of us, that third option, which people still don't understand. You're in a relationship, a marriage, you're in a business, you're in a monastery. It's not about me, it's about the, every monk who stays at Bodhinyana Monastery and every layperson too, every kangaroo, every little tick 
which snow crawls on your skin. We're in it together. So when we're in it together, we care for everybody. Not just care for them, but you care for yourself, you care for us. And I think that's such an important idea. And the other story which you've all heard again umpteen times, quack quack. You've heard that so many times. Is it a chicken? Is it a duck? And because I've told that story so many times, I'm not going to repeat it, but I am going to say that in all the years I've told it, people, some people have got too much time on their hands, so they go on the internet and find if that's actually possible for a chicken to go quack quack. And they did send me the link. There is at least one chicken in this world who was orphaned, the poor little chick. And because it was orphaned, it was adopted by a family of ducks. So it grew up, his brothers and sisters were ducks. And it waddled like a duck, even though it was a chicken. And eventually it started quacking like a duck, even though it was technically a chicken. There was at least one chicken in this world who goes quack quack. That's proof. So just because it goes quack quack, it doesn't mean it's a duck. That could be a chicken. So just because, oh, I better be careful what I'm saying, just because it's someone you like and they say it's a chicken, you don't have to believe them. And especially you don't have to argue. Especially in this Buddhist society of WA. Please don't argue. What's more important, being right or having this beautiful peace and loving kindness? I said this to this couple, what's more important, that he's right or she's right or that you're in love? It's a pretty easy answer, isn't it? Having that peace and harmony and respect is more important than being right. And I wish that all the politicians could listen to that story so there won't be any argument. And then we can actually, instead of spending so much time arguing, we can actually do some work and get things done. Do you agree? Am I right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but the other thing, which is a great thing also to do on New Year's Eve, the other important story, again, on marriage, I remember it was Lynn Jackson, she's probably taking a rest now. But this was when someone, she asked me, said, now why do monks get involved in marriages? We're celibate. What do I know about marriage? I've been a monk almost 50 years now. What do I know? Well, why is it when people do get married, they always want a monk or a priest or some spiritual person to give them some guidance in how to be married. Well, we ain't done it. <laughs> we're celibate, we're monks. So, the reason is, I've always been invited to these marriages, there's always something spiritual there. Always something where you can get insight and understanding. And I did just happen to mention this to, uh, with Venerable Diana sitting next to me. One of the scariest moments I've ever experienced in my life. And I have been frightened many. I've seen 
uh, tigers and snakes and very dangerous animals. Now even just over here in Western Australia, even a huge three meter long dugite, that's a big snake. Wasn't scared. What really scared me more than anything else in my life was when I was a student, it was at Cambridge, one of my friends had just got married because it was a friend, you know, I was dressed up in a, I actually did have a suit in those days. I dressed up in a suit, you know, nicely groomed with all my other friends all dressed up in suits and ties. And then we started these stupid conversations, as you do when you're only about 19 or 20. And the stupid conversation was, who's going to be next? And then we pointed at one of my friends, Jeff his name was, I still remember this, so Jeff, he's probably be next. And then the, uh, my other friend said, no, 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 no one will marry him. <laughs> and the next person they pointed to was me. My lay name was Peter. I said, oh, Peter will be next. And then my friends looked at me and said, no, 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 no one will marry him. <laughs> but there was a girl standing next to me. And she whispered in my ear, I would. <laughs> I was only about 19 or 20 at the time. That scared me. And I made sure that I was a great distance away from her. That's true. A bit mean maybe, but you know, that's what happened. So that was the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I don't know how I got into that. But anyway, just, it's not about me, it's not about her, it's not about anybody, it's about us all the time. When you put everyone together, that's great. But the other thing which I did once was in Malaysia, and there's lots of people, Buddhists from Malaysia here. One of the towns I really liked visiting to give talks was in Malacca. And Malacca's a very old town, lots of Buddhists there. And I just happened to be giving a small retreat there for two or three days. And I got this message from one of the celebrities in Malaysia. She had her own TV show in Malaysia. Her name was Zandria, uh, Zandria Oi or something. It was quite a few years ago now. But anyway, she was getting married. And she went, she wanted to have a ceremony in Malacca. And it was just by chance. She saw Ajahn Brahm will be in Malacca on my wedding day. And she followed me on YouTube. So she wrote, can you come just for half an hour, an hour, any time, I'll change the ceremony time to suit you. Can you come to give a blessing on my marriage day? I said, yeah, of course. And so because of that, it's the first and only time that I've been featured in one of the glossy little magazines I, think, I know it was New Idea or Vogue or something like that, I don't know the names of them, the Malaysian edition. You know those glossy magazines which people spend too much money buying? <laughs> but anyhow, after that you would see her regularly, I was teaching in Malaysia, and she told me, she did a follow-up story uh, for the glossy magazines on what it was like, you know, being married, 
and having a blessing from a Buddhist monk. And she said, the best thing about the blessing was I asked her and her partner, please, every year on the anniversary of your wedding, have a nice quiet time together. Dinner will be great. And have a little forgiveness ceremony. To be able to say to one another, if there's anything I've said, anything I've done or even thought, which has not been right, which has hurt you, or things which I didn't do, which I should have done, which hurt you. Honestly, I'm sorry. Please, I ask for your forgiveness. And you do it with as much sincerity as you can muster. And if anybody ever asks forgiveness like that, I remember reading the Buddha saying, if anybody asks forgiveness like that, full sincerity, you have to give it forgiveness. It's a beautiful act to do. You may be reluctant to give forgiveness, but you do it. The other person is being honest and sincere and humble. They made mistakes. And we do make mistakes. Most mistakes, we don't mean to make them. And then the other partner says the same. Husband says to the wife, then the wife says to the husband, whichever way you want to do it, whatever I've done by body, speech or mind, intentional or by accident, which has hurt or irritated you, I ask forgiveness. And that forgiveness is given. There's something humble, beautiful, which keeps people together. And so on behalf of the Sangha, male and female, which have sat up here and taught you, inspired you, guided you, chanted with you, listened to you. And on behalf of all the Buddhist Society of Western Australia, I don't care if it's the president, the person who cleans the toilets, if there's anything we've done by body, speech or mind, which has made your life more difficult, we haven't been there in time for you, intentional or unintentional, or things we didn't do which we could have done, ask your forgiveness, sincerely. And please know anything which you have done by body, speech or mind, which you feel guilty about. I shouldn't have done that to poor old Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> or to any other the monks or nuns or the members of the Buddhist society. You say, please, on behalf of us, can you forgive us too? And that forgiveness ceremony is, can be so beautiful. It means we have no ill will together. We realize that even though I'm an old monk, doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. And it means that we always have this opportunity to be able to clean up any old dishes which are still dirty or cracked and make sure that we don't keep lingering with any bad feeling we have towards anyone in our community. And that gives a sense of peace and freedom. So we can face 2024 as if 
you know that you have good friends, people who will never criticize you or put you down, who care for you, love you, and will always be there to you to share a funny story, <laughs> or share an old story which is no longer funny. <laughs> but you still laugh anyway, out of kindness to me. So that's my little um, end of the year talk. And I know that I was dying to go to the toilet when I left here a few minutes ago. That's all been relieved. It's only about 20 minutes, 18 minutes to go. So I'm going to start meditating now. Those of you whose legs aren't sore, you can do without going to the toilet. But if you need to go to the toilet, now's a very good time. And then come and sit quietly. And as we come closer to midnight, as it gets to midnight, I would start the blessing chant. This year, I forget actually what I did last year, I'm going to be chanting the Metta chant in English. Some of you know that, we often do it on retreats. This is what should be done. And when I finish that, I'll give a very quick uh, Buddhist blessing in Pali to you all for your well-being and happiness for the coming year. So now's the time for me to be quiet and to join you in some meditation.
It is now the new year. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, not busy with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, and wise and skillful, <coughs> not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing, that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be happy, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, May all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to wrong views. The pure-hearted one 
having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Sadhu, 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 and Happy New Year, everybody. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Excellent. So that's it, you brought in 2024 in the most beautiful way possible. There's some beautiful chanting of the Metta Sutta in English, because we're in English-speaking country today. So I wish you all happiness and well-being, a beautiful life, lots of success. May you all be rich so we can get lots of donations. Yes. <laughs> lots of happiness and health so I can have a nice peaceful time. No deaths so I can avoid doing funerals. What else? May you all be well and happy. Sadhu. <laughs> okay.